Welcome to the latest HE Live podcast, brought to you in association with White and Case as part of the PE Outlook series. I'm Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief at Hydrogen Economist, and I'm joined today by David Edmondson, CEO of Neom Green Hydrogen Company, which is the world's largest producer of green hydrogen based in Saudi Arabia. Joining David is Karina Radford, a partner in White and Case's Energy Infrastructure and Project Finance Group based in London, and Alec Johnson, a partner in White and Case's Project Development and Finance Group based in Riyadh. The story of NGHC is truly unique. At scale, this project is the first of its kind internationally, leading the world in the hydrogen revolution. Harnessing the energy of Neom's abundant natural resources, NGHC's project will pave the way for the large-scale adoption of green hydrogen, while driving Saudi Vision's 2030's sustainable development goals. But many questions remain. How easily can the success story be replicated? What are the opportunities for green hydrogen across the Middle East? And what's next for the wider hydrogen economy? But first, let's dive into how the project team and their white and case partners developed their successful model. Alec, you have worked extensively across the Middle East. Tell us about the landscape and the opportunity for green hydrogen development. Thanks, Paul. Look, I think the Middle East has all of the ingredients needed to make it a key region for green hydrogen development. It has the natural resources needed in the form of large amounts of undeveloped land that benefit from abundant wind and solar, which are, of course, the key inputs for wind and solar power generation. For blue hydrogen, it has depleted oil wells for carbon capture, as well as low-cost natural gas. Geographically, the Middle East is well-placed for exports, given its proximity to the Suez Canal for European markets and existing shipping lanes to Asian markets. There are enormous amounts of capital to be expended in the region, given recent sky-high oil prices, both on the equity side with large sovereign wealth funds and other government-related entities investing heavily in infrastructure projects, particularly those in non-traditional sectors as the GCC moves away from oil and gas, and also on the debt side, given the maturity of the banking market here, particularly for projects that can be characterized as green, and also the number of state-owned development funds that are active in the infrastructure sector. Finally, I think green hydrogen is very well aligned with the government agendas here. Green energy and the energy transition are key focuses of Saudi Arabia 2030, which you mentioned before. The UAE, of course, is hosting the COP28 this year, and the other states in the region all have aggressive net zero carbon targets. So Dave and I were talking yesterday, actually, one area that we're not seeing in the Middle East is coordinated government support for green hydrogen in the form of investment incentives or regulatory changes. So that could be an area that presents opportunity for governments here to step in and improve the prospects for further development in a meaningful way. But I think all in all, there seems to be a consensus that the Middle East can really be a driving force in the sector. Thanks, Alec. David, can you tell us how NGHC fits together with the overall NEON project and how it is such a game changer for the region and for the energy transition globally? Yes, Paul. I think Alex summarizes sort of the backdrop to all of this. Saudi Arabia's commitment, their desire to be one of the leading energy exporters by 2030 and some very bold commitments around Vision 2030. I mean, when the three shareholders came together, basically back in 2019, they agreed they wanted to build a world-class green hydrogen facility. At the time, green hydrogen was not really talked about in the public, but there was a commitment from the chairman of the three companies, that's Air Products, Aquapower and Neon, they really believed they could actually make this happen and they believed that the market would come. And that was fairly visionary at the time. I mean, nowadays, there's a lot of discussion around green hydrogen and investments and such like, 
But we're four years into that process. We got our financial close back in May this year. Again, a huge achievement. And when complete, this project will be the largest project producing green hydrogen in the world. And the reason we've gone at scale is to really drive down that cost, to make it economically viable, to really make the opportunities for companies who want to achieve net zero to take advantage of what we can produce and export. Where does this fit in terms of NEOM? I mean, some of the commitments that NEOM are making around the economy they're creating, the new vision around how cities are built, developed, and industries are created. I mean, we're really the first major investor in that area. We have an opportunity to really set the tone for what will happen. The fact we got financial close, I think, is an endorsement on a lot of the hard work that's gone into by White and Case to position ourselves as a credible business investment. And also the support we've had from Oxygen enabling all of this to happen. Because a lot of hard work had gone into over the last two or three years just to enable this project to come to fruition. So very much part of what Saudi Arabia are trying to do, very much part of what NEOM are trying to position themselves and fits in with the commitments around achieving net zero around the world and providing the mechanism for many companies to realize those. I think the other aspect, which I think is testimony to the team who've been working on this one, is whilst we may be the first, we don't expect to be certainly the last. I think we've actually opened a lot of doors for other businesses and other companies to look at these investment opportunities. Arguably, there are some big risks taken by the three shareholders. I think those are very much balanced risks. And I think some of the discussions we've had with the lenders, with a lot of help from White and Case on the way, is to say, look, this investment, this business proposition is absolutely viable. And we've proved it. We've got a 30-year off-tape, which positions ourselves very uniquely. And I think it's a testimony to the teams who've been working on this and also to the vision that Saudi Arabia has around being the largest exporter of green hydrogen or low-carbon fuels in the future. Thanks, David. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, the big question for me is how much this amazing story can be repeated Karina, can you tell us about the financing for this project and what was done differently? Yes, of course. If we zoom in on the financing, we're talking about 8.4 billion of capex and we raised in the end just over 6 billion, 6.1 billion of debt. It was oversubscribed. I think that's an important point to mention out of the gate. You know, the appetite was clearly there. What did we do differently? Well, that's an interesting question. In many respects, we tried to de-emphasize the difference to a certain extent. We had a large-scale project financing. Saudi Arabia is very much familiar with bringing those sorts of numbers of dollars to bear for large projects to get off the ground. In one aspect, this project was very sort of reminiscent of sectors that the financiers have come to know and love for many years. You know, there's a huge wind and solar farm. Everyone understands wind and solar and the risks that come with it. You know, a few electrolyzers in the middle that you clip on and, and an ammonia loop, which certainly many of the players, including air products, probably produces an ammonia loop every other week. And then there's a downstream offtake. So if you kind of zoom right back to that level, a lot of that is very familiar structuring aspects for any project finance set of lenders. The reality is, of course, that there was innovation. There was innovation, obviously, in the scale. There was innovation in the way those component parts came together. And the greatest innovation was, and maybe we'll come to this later, was the market and the story around this project and where it sits in kind of where the world is going in terms of low carbon fuels. In terms of what we did differently, I think what we did differently was hopefully not too much. We tried to develop the right risk matrix, if you like, for the project, recognizing that lenders were looking at this as a potentially a new industry. We tried to sort of undo some of that scary headline aspect of this and lean into some of the things that they recognize and push forward heavy nostalgia and some of the risk allocations that they've seen across many of these projects before. 
and hold their hand as much as possible through the technical and commercial story in order to be able to, frankly, support what they were going to need to do when they went off to their individual credit committees and explained why it was critical for their institution or bank to be part of such a new project. So really, it was trying to combine a lot of cross-sector experience on our side, you know, some industrial downstream projects, power, renewable energy, looking at the Middle East, understanding the players involved. I mean, three phenomenal shareholders who were going to be able to get this project across the line was really where the story starts and ends. But holding the financiers' feet to the fire and explaining to them that this was risk that was easily digestible and that they should be able to lend loads of money to the project, which obviously gloriously is what happened in the end. David, what is your take on financing, given how crucial it is to these projects? Can something like the long-term offtake deal with Air Products be replicated? I think, as Karina just summarized extremely well, I think the business case that we made very eloquently, I think, to the lenders was very compelling. I mean, one of the things that made it so compelling was the offtake agreement. And again, if you look at the shareholder makeup, you've got Air Products, Aquapower, and Neom. And again, there's so much synergy between the three of them. You know, Air Products has 60 years of operating experience around hydrogen plants. They bring immediate credibility into the operations side, also the technology side. Aquapower, with their experience around the renewables aspect, both, again, from an operating and a project development point of view. So all of that does come very nicely together. But then if you look at the offtake side of it, the deal came together because we had an offtake. We had a company in the form of Air Products who were prepared to take all of that product. They're also prepared to take it at a price and for a duration that they believe would enable them to long-term support the marketplace. And that was at a time when there was no market and there potentially really is still no market understanding about market pricing on green hydrogen. But it was, as I said earlier on, a very visionary step. And I think it's absolutely the right step, because if you look at the level of interest now in green hydrogen and investing in projects, it's huge. The challenge I think other investors have got is bringing that to financial close. We did that with a 30-year offtake. Is that repeatable? It's probably fairly unique. Does it need to be repeatable? I think, as Karina said earlier on, I think the banks are now a lot more, the lenders are going to be a lot more comfortable with the concept of taking a higher level of risk than they were when we came. And a lot of that is because of all the work that we've done, the discussions that are ongoing, better understanding of how the market's going to grow. And I think that will allow others to be more bold and bring that to the marketplace as well. Thanks. So beyond air products as the off-taker for Neon, can we talk about unlocking demand for hydrogen? It seems a bit chicken and egg. Karina, how do you see the relationship between demand, supply and policy in getting projects off the ground? Well, that's a big question, Paul. Thank you for that. I think it's the critical question. And it was at the heart, really, of many of the questions that surrounded the financing. Here you were, you were asking a huge range of international and regional banks, including the German government in the form of Euler Hermes, who came in and provided support, to take a view on a 30-year offtake. You can obviously produce a robust offtake agreement. The offtaker itself, Air Products, is really one of the, the only sort of three major players in hydrogen at the moment. So you couldn't ask for more there. But the question is, what does 30 years of the hydrogen market look like? And lenders are people of dark habits and therefore need to imagine a world where the offtake isn't there and they're stuck with a project that they now have to go and market green ammonia in the market. So they need to understand what that looks like. Well, the oil and gas sector would have delivered them a beautiful market consultant report, would have talked about, I don't know, various indexes of price and what the projections are for the curves over the next years and had some relatively soothing thoughts on what demand would be. And of course, we know, as you say, that the demand side is also nascent. And it's really a very interesting part of the hydrogen and low carbon fuels market right now. And it sort of alludes to one of the points that Alec mentioned earlier on about policy and was in your question. If we don't 
create both supply and demand right now, we're going to run adrift pretty quickly. So policy and incentives obviously need to be focused both on production, but also on the customer side. And there's lots you could talk about there, both in respect of what the US is doing, for example, and what the EU is trying to do there. How do you incentivize the uptake of hydrogen as a fuel in various industries? And at the same time, incentivize people to make some large capex investments in the supply side so that they come together gloriously at one moment, a kind of field of dreams, Kevin Costner moment, as you can imagine. What I will say is I was in New York last week talking at our annual energy seminar and actually did a piece on this project. And there was an extraordinary amount of interest in it. And as you know, of course, it was just the end of last week that the US announced their new sort of seven hydrogen hubs. So the word is out. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of hydrogen production in the market. The belief is there and it's apparent. There are obviously carrots and sticks as to how we incentivize the demand side, but those are also being sharpened, if you can sharpen a carrot. And that's exactly where the focus is in making certain that the demand is there. There's more to do, more to do in Europe, perhaps, on the demand side, but that's probably a subject of a different podcast. If you don't have projects like this project, which is going to be market ready in a short period of time, you will also not have the demand. So it is very critical that you get off the ground with something like this particular project and start moving that market into existence. Thanks, Karina. Aside from the mixed metaphor of sharpening carrots, David, what's your take? How did you bring all these moving parts together and make this project a reality and get it to financial close? Well, I mean, a lot of this is around collaboration. I mean, it's collaboration amongst the shareholders. It's a shared vision about what they want to do. It's collaborating around, well, what can each of the shareholders contribute to make this project a reality? And that's at the base level. But you then take that into, we need to come up with a design concept. So we chose our technology partners very early on. We did that on purpose because you could go to the marketplace, you could bid it out, but then you could end up with a different solution, a different configuration of the plant, which may or may not address your needs. So by selecting our technology partners very early on, we brought them effectively into the tent, so to speak, and said, look, this is going to be either a win-win or a lose-lose. So we really need our technology partners to help us bring this deal together so we can all win together. We understand some of the trade-offs. There were benefits to all parties all around. So I think everyone bought into that, You know, whether we're tying in with TK New Serial, which we did on the electrolyzers. We obviously had air products technology around the air separation plant, Topso on the ammonia loop. These were core parts of the puzzle that would actually enable us to deliver a competitive offering. Then what you need to do is you need to fully integrate all of that. And I think the way that Air Products, Aquapower and Neon work together in that development phase, as we're trying to configure how many wind turbines you need, how many solar panels, can we afford more electrolyzers? And trying to get that trade-off to optimize the lowest cost of ammonia was absolutely critical. But that just gets you to a, we think we've got a viable project. Then you're looking at the lenders. How can we engage with them? And again, White and Case played a huge part in helping facilitate that, the discussion between the interested parties, because all the shareholders had their respective support because they obviously had to look after their interests. But everyone was focused on how do we make this project a reality? So there were trade-offs, there were gives and takes throughout, but it was that level of collaboration and the commitment to get to that I'll say finishing line, argue it's a starting line when you do huge financial close, but everyone wanted to make it happen. And I think that was hugely impressive. And I think to have reached financial close in the time that we did, considering where we started, was huge. But I think everyone had to play their part because without that, we could have come undone at any moment in time. But everyone wanted to see us reach that point. And we did. So it's a testament to everyone involved. Brilliant. Karina, how do you see it? 
What did White and Case do on the financing side? Am I allowed to say what we do best? Maybe. Well, Alec and I spent a lot of time together and are still talking, which is good. And we had an extraordinary team of people there across the associates, across, you know, it's a cross office effort. We work a lot in projects in the Middle East. And therefore, we have a really great combined team of people that sit in London and Riyadh and other places. And it's an important collaboration internally on our side. I mean, Simply put, we supported the journey and the momentum. As Dave says, a lot of it is you've got to keep pushing and you've got to you know, get the momentum there. We had to be creative and nimble on our feet to come up with solutions. That's quite typical, if you like. On a normal project, you've got to understand what you think the lenders are going to throw at you as a risk and get ready to kind of describe the mitigation or the solution. On this project, even more, we had to come out front, really, with really trying to sell that story I mentioned earlier on about why are there aspects of this deal which are familiar? How can they lean into things they understand about risk allocation? Why should they not be terrified that this has got the word green in it? There are other aspects of that which was important for us to get out in front of if we really wanted to get this done. We obviously had to work hand in glove with the other side as well, and that was very important. There was a lot of sort of innovation, if you like, and how the lenders wanted to finance this. We had mezzanine debt. We had senior debt. We had first-of-a-kind investments from people like the National Infrastructure Fund for Saudi Arabia. I think it was their first or certainly their first material investment. And it was a huge team effort that got us there in really what was quite an extraordinary period of time in terms of how long it could have taken. Yeah, for sure. And Alec, what's next for Green Hydrogen in the Middle East? How much is NEOM or NGHC a launchpad? And what sectors are ripe? So I think the NEOM Green Hydrogen Project will definitely serve as a model for other green hydrogen projects in the region. Some of these projects might look a lot like NEOM, which is replicable in a region that's so well suited for green hydrogen, like we talked about before. Dave sort of talked about different kinds of offtakes, and some of these projects will look different, right? They'll have different types of offtakes. They'll have different structures. They won't be as fully integrated as the NEOM project, but there will be similarities, and people will end up borrowing from what was done on the NEOM project. I think what's clear is that NEOM will serve as the benchmark for a new project in the sector here. What's also clear is that there are lots of people here in the region, bankers, sponsors, government entities, who are very interested in understanding how the sponsors on the NEOM project made it all come together. There's lots of interest and people are, they want to know what they can borrow from this project on sort of the next generation. In terms of what's next for green hydrogen in the region, I think the NEOM green hydrogen project, it's not only relevant for the green hydrogen export sector. We're seeing increasing interest in the region in green hydrogen hubs targeting local supply in the UAE, in Oman, elsewhere. The idea is that these hubs will support other hydrogen-reliant energy transition projects. Sustainable aviation fuel is one example. Another example that's really taking root in the region is green steel. There are a number of green steel projects at various stages of development in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE and elsewhere. And they're all planned in close proximity to future green hydrogen production, which they'll use as a feedstock. For exports to the EU, the introduction of the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism, which effectively taxes the carbon density of certain imports, including steel, means that green steel producers using locally produced hydrogen may have a competitive advantage on their exports to the EU moving forward. So it's an interesting sector, right, that, again, it really seems to be sort of taking off here. So look, overall, I think there's a great future in the region for green hydrogen, and people will undoubtedly be looking to the NEOM project as the most relevant example of how to make them work, right? Whether they're in the same model or something a little bit different or even a slightly different product. 
Thanks. Positive words. Thanks to our speakers, David, Karina, and Alec for joining us today for this HE Live podcast. Don't forget to share and subscribe to our channel and look out for another podcast with White and Case next month. Thank you again to White and Case for their partnership with PE Outlook and watch out for PE Outlook 2024, which will be published in December, offering you series of insightful articles from the industry's leading institutions, commentators, and analysts. Thanks again.